This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Heather Haverleski, an author who recently published the book Foreverland on the Divine Tedium of Marriage. She also writes the Ask Polly advice column formerly on New York Magazine, now on Substack. Heather, welcome to the show. Hello, Danny. I'm so pleased to be here with you. I am so, so pleased to be here too with you. I, I love, uh, you know, periodically our intersecting careers lead us into moments where we get to do fun little sessions together yes. for the people to just enjoy or not as they like. And uh, I'm so glad that we're we're doing this now. How are you? How's the, the book launch been going? It's been going really well. I've actually been enjoying uh, promoting this book, which is a little bit new for me. I mean, last book, I enjoyed the book tour. I actually got on a plane and went to several places. This time, I just went to New York. But I've been doing a lot of like putting on makeup and then getting on Zooms, doing interviews, putting on makeup and getting on podcasts and stuff like that. But it's been fun because I don't know, this book is just so personal to me that it's fun to talk about. And amazingly enough, even though people keep asking me how humiliated I am by my book, I don't feel humiliated by it at all. So that's been kind of a new thing, I think. Um, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I can really see that. There's often like a fascinating opportunity for either a really interesting conversation or at least a very interesting drawn out pause when one person wants to respond to something with obviously this is embarrassing and cringe inducing and somebody else says it's not that way for me. Because I, at least in my own experience, whenever I have found something cringe inducing, if somebody asks me then to describe it or to look at those feelings of cringiness, I become wholly inarticulate. I cannot formulate an argument. I can't describe it. I can just kind of reaffirm. Yeah. But it's embarrassing. Actively embarrassing. Yeah. I don't know that everyone has that same like incoherent response to the idea of embarrassment, but I think often beyond the sort of just, I find this embarrassing what would a conversation about embarrassment look like if you didn't collapse at the first sign of embarrassment <laughs> or potential embarrassment? It's so interesting. Have you have you found that at all? Like, have you found that you've been able to have a further conversation with anyone who has said, like, writing about a marriage is embarrassing, writing, you know, resentful or painful or indifferent moments of a marriage is embarrassing? Yeah, I mean, you know, most people feel pretty embarrassed by revealing things about their marriage. and But I don't shut down. I mean, I think part of the Part of the joy of writing a book about your lowest and most humiliating moments in a marriage is that once you're done, it's very cathartic. It's sort of like, okay, I've made peace with what a what a tool I am, um, and <laughs> mostly, or at least the episodes in this book I have made peace with. But also, it's really been interesting to be asked over and over again how, but your husband is he was humiliated by that piece in the New York Times, right? I mean, he hated that. And he hates that you're writing that you hate him. And he can't, you know, and I'll say like, well, I think he's, I, I, 
Oh, he does. He's really not seeming <laughs> upset about it at all. I keep checking in, and also he read my mean spirited writing before he knew me, and it was why he sought me out because he likes my terrible sense of humor. So um, it's interesting to to occupy this place where it's like, oh yeah, humiliating things. You know, let's talk about them. It feels good, but I, you know, there are things that if you ask me complicated questions about the logic behind certain, it's not like I can never be tripped up. And in fact, I'm going to say I'm going to get tripped up on your podcast, Danny, a lot, because I really like the way you give life advice. And I'm intimidated by it, honestly. Well, I both appreciate the generosity of that sentiment. And I also hope it helps that Earlier, before we started recording, I told you about how I almost burned my apartment down last night trying to intimidate a mouse. So I'm I'm hoping that that will at least quell uh, whatever other feelings might come up. But yeah, remind me to ask you later. I would love to hear a little bit more because I'm curious to know, I think sometimes when people have, and I include myself in this, uh, a cringing response to something else, it's always helpful to kind of go back and ask like, what thought went into it? Because like, it's not as if you just like, woke up and realized you had dreamed a book and wrote it all down by accident. Like you also spent time writing and choosing certain episodes to describe. You chose your words. You went through at least some sort of editing and copy editing process. So it's also not as if you wrote those scenes accidentally or without realizing that's what you were doing. Well, I mean, I think sometimes that's a a testament to the quality of the writing that people feel like they're spying on you when they're reading it instead of feeling distanced by the fact that you're forming it into a friendly story about how great you are. Sometimes if you read something that's sort of vivid and lively, you kind of get the feeling, oh, I just spied on this terrible person. And you kind of forget, oh, well, but she wrote a whole book about these kinds of things and was pretty careful. I mean, I didn't take out embarrassing things. I took out things that dragged, that weren't, didn't feel, that felt insincere that felt repetitive. So one of the things that I I have felt really sort of struck by is there's lots that I like about the last book that I wrote, which was a, a memoir of sorts. I think it's pretty clear that even on rereading it, it's a book written by someone who's fairly anxious to be liked. I didn't reread that and think, wow, I really like included moments and occasions and episodes where I acted badly any any sort of like anecdote that's like slightly personal or vulnerable, I come off, you know, if at worst, maybe a little too self-effacing or, you know, maybe trying too hard to people please. And that's not a very comprehensive portrait of who I am as a person. Yeah, but and so I think can I can I can I just interrupt please, and say please, a thing? Save me for myself. There's a way that you're writing it feels so full, honestly. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan, so I'm gonna gross everyone out with what a fan I am. But even when I, before I met you, I feel like I had a pretty good sense of your qualities as a person. And your writing does not come across to me as defensive or a gloss on who you are at all. I think that you're- That's kind. Yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) you seem, I don't know. I don't think you could even sound that way, really. You're just, uh, yeah. I mean, to be clear, I didn't reread it and think, gosh, this is dreadful. (laughs) I just, you know, I I like the book very, very much. And I think there's lots of useful, interesting and and honest moments in it. But I do think that I am very much like 
of my cohort, where when I think of a lot of my own contemporaries and the type of writing that we do, there's often a real sense of like certain affects that just don't usually get put front and center. And I think that's one of the things that sort of invigorated me actually about uh, both like your book coming out and then also the reaction to that New York Times excerpt, which was sort of just like, obviously everyone knows and it goes without saying that these are the things that you must not share with other people. It would not be possible to share them in a way that was careful, thoughtful, critical. It must have just been a betrayal of your worst. (laughs) Like I find that so interesting and it's just like, yeah. Why are we so afraid of that? Or not, I mean, when I say we, I mean like the particular cohort. I don't mean everybody. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, it's like you made a big mistake in front of a lot of people was sort of the, you know, I wrote a really mean blog. Right. And it's like, maybe it was a mistake, but I wasn't sleepwalking. Like, yeah. I, I chose to do this. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to consider the mistake level of it, but not the, uh, it was carefully chosen. Yeah. So the subject is sore loser. I met my friend Max on a dating app about a year ago. Our relationship was ambiguous from the start. We'd hook up and go on romantic dates. He even had me meet his sister and best friend. But he had recently ended a serious relationship and didn't want anything official. We stopped our sexual relationship after I developed stronger feelings for him, but remained good friends. Two months after we stopped hooking up, Max started dating someone else exclusively. She's lovely, and I'm happy for them but I also sometimes feel hurt and resentful that he gave me so much affection but wasn't willing to consider a serious relationship with me. His girlfriend is now part of our shared friend group, and while I like them both individually, spending time with them as a couple has increased my resentment. I don't want to lose Max as a friend. We're both trans, we both live in a small town, and I feel like he's one of the only people who really gets it. I want to be happy for him, but I sometimes find myself wishing we'd never slept together at all. Is there anything I can do to make these feelings go away? I really um, vividly felt that sort of sense of like, I just think that Max is great and I think Max's girlfriend is great. And yet there's also this part of me that just really feels like if he wasn't ready for a relationship with me, then he owed it to me to spend the next three years not dating anyone else for longer than two weeks. Like all future relationships for the foreseeable future need to be of equal or lesser duration than ours was so that I can feel like it was fair. And I so relate to that. And I wish I had a better answer than dating is not fair. And that little part of you that wants that fair ruling is going to be an enemy to your own relationships and well-being. Do you think that there's a there's a there's tier for fairness? Is that is that the language of what's happening? Or is it just like, I can't stop obsessing about the fact that, I mean, there, you're right. There, there's a little bit of like, I deserve the same thing that this other person got, and but I didn't get it. And that's an injustice. That is the tone. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't think this letter writer has done anything at all wrong or inappropriate. And these feelings make a ton of sense to me. I think that what I want to do maybe in that moment is slightly encourage the letter writer to feel comfortable looking at or considering feelings of theirs that aren't just wholly generous or peaceful, not so that they can just go ahead and get incredibly mad, but so they can just kind of acknowledge, I am not in fact in a position to immediately transition out of 
I have strong feelings for the guy I'm seeing, stronger than his feelings for me, and now he has a new girlfriend, and we're all good friends, and I can't believe I'm still sometimes upset about this. Like, that's a lot of pressure to just be so chill and so easygoing that I kind of want the letter writer to be able to say to themselves, not necessarily to Max, like, I had other expectations. I had things that I wanted. I feel sad and hurt that I didn't get them. And it's difficult for me to watch him be in a serious relationship with somebody else. And that it is not reasonable or kind to say to myself, you know, why aren't you over this? Why don't you just immediately shut off your desires once you hear no? That's a lot. Yeah. And also, is it possible to sort of understand like, this is a process that is going to be led by my feelings, actually. It's not about just shutting something down. It's sort of like you have to look at your feelings for a while to figure out Mm -hmm. what fantasy did you have about what this person was going to mean to you? And what did you, what had you created around that fantasy? Like what kind of uh, world did you imagine with this person? They mentioned that Max and the letter writer are both trans and live in a small town. It was sort of like there was a romantic vision and also sort of like a, you know, there's a kind of like shadow of a scarcity of resources in the background, you know, mm-hmm. where it sort of feels like, is there a scarcity mentality at work in, the, in this person's greater worldview where there are not enough of this kind of person like Max to go around and, and there's not enough love to go around. I mean, I think that for myself personally, I had, I know I have a long, rich history of doing all the wrong things in, in most situations. And that kind of scarcity mentality around love was something that characterized the first, I don't know, 20 to 30 years of my life. But it was formed directly by my family of origin and the way things functioned within my family system. It was easy for me to be put into a, into a state of, I'm not getting my fair share and I'm not, why am I, you know, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you're in that state and you're kind of grabby and, oh, I never get enough, you know? I mean, I never get enough was like a sound that I made for a long time. And the thing is, if you say to yourself, I got to shut this down and get over this. Why can't I just get over this? That's sort of you doing a bad parent to yourself Mm. and saying like, you're never going to get enough, accept it and move on. Whereas looking at the feelings of I never get enough closely and saying, whoa, not only am I applying this to a situation where I'm really not getting enough, but I apply that sound to a lot of different situations where it's not appropriate or it doesn't really fit. It's not accurate. Yeah. I, I I think, Letter writer, I have so much just, you know, affection for your position in this letter. So if at any point I am talking about uh, like identifying with something unreasonable or selfish, I just really want to stress it is not that I think you have been behaving or even thinking unreasonable thoughts. I just want you to be able to be in touch with that part of yourself that's not always like, cool, I can roll with this. I'm immediately adjusting. I'm fine. That's really what I'm kind of striving for here. I think I'm really on the same page as you, Heather, about the kind of idea of, you know, I know it doesn't have to be like this, but we're kind of the only two trans people in town. It sort of added a special sheen to our relationship. I thought of us as like, 
comrades in arms as well as lovers and and felt like there was a real potential for it to be kind of like us against the world as well as maybe a touch of like where the both like the two homecoming kings getting together or what have you. I also think, especially if you plan on staying in this small town for the foreseeable future, to think of your friendship with Max as one that you want to cultivate a long-term version of. And to that end, if you need a little time and space from Max, I don't want you to think of that as counterproductive. I want you to think of that as like an investment in the longevity of your relationship. And again, you know, I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that gay and trans people are friends with more of their exes than the general population. But sometimes that is the case. And sometimes that's the case, at least in some part, because of necessity, because you live in a town with only so many, you know, trans people. I think, honestly, if you were to say to Max, Max, I have been really happy for you and your new relationship. And I've also noticed that it's been a little tricky for me to adjust. And I need to make myself scarce for the next couple of months or weeks or, you know, don't pin a firm date on it, but just make it clear. It's not going to be a couple of days and I'm not going to just drop off the face of the earth without telling you. It is specifically so I can, you know, spend a little time mourning the loss of our relationship, letting go, getting a little distance from you and your girlfriend so that when I do eventually pop back up, you'll know I'm doing so because I feel ready. And if I'm not always available right away for like big group hangs, know that I'm doing that because I'm taking care of myself. I think Max would hear that well. I don't think he would take that as like, oh my gosh, that's shocking to me. I can't believe you would need a little time. That's so weird. And I don't think that it would be received in anything less than just like, wow, okay, thank you for telling me. Yeah, I think uh, that's spot on. And and I just have to say, Danny, you're not doing a lot to to comfort me about my inability to give good advice. It just you hit that one out of the park and now I'm angry at you. So we're now we're in a bad place and I'm going to need a little time um, to adjust to the fact that you, <laughs> I told you very specifically at the beginning, I wanted you to comfort me by behaving, mm-hmm. it, giving me mediocre advice and you didn't do that. And now I'm feeling insecure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you made a request of me and I considered it <laughs> um, and I have declined to give you what you want and you are now free to take care of yourself. Um, now, can I say though, that I love the fact I was in another conversation um, with the, one of the hosts of Gender Reveal, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 that podcast, and I we talked a little bit about how this investment in the longevity of relationships is something that, or that the fact that queer and trans and gay community like people kind of stay in each other's orbits, and you sometimes like your roommate. I think Tuck gave an example of, so, you know, sometimes your roommate is your ex or two exes, and Things like that happen. And I, I was just like, that's so nice. It's like, uh, I feel like in the straight world, it's very on or off. Like, oh, it's over now. You know, I didn't win you. And so now I will have to disappear from your life forever. And I love the idea of saying, I'm going to be gone for a while, but it's so I can come back. I think that's beautiful. And it's not even in my lexicon to think that way at all. So I just have to say, I think that's just, it's it's like investing in the long term. You have this, you have this connection with someone and you kind of believe in this person and you, you match, you know, it's this beautiful thing and investing in that instead of, but also honoring your feelings. That's like just such a nice nuanced approach to something that's usually so, oh, well, you're screwed. Time to move on, buddy. Yeah. I think that's often a missing element in people who 
are sort of stuck feeling like they would like to be close friends with an ex, but are having a really difficult time. And I think that missing element is sometimes people try to just go right away from we broke up yesterday and this week we are good buddies. Yeah. And that's a tall order. I'm not saying that can't ever happen, but the exes that I'm friendliest and closest with, there was at least a couple of months after the breakup where we were in very little contact, if any. And that's not to say you have to say, like, lose my number for exactly six months and then all my bad feelings will have disappeared. It's just to go from, I'm seeing this guy, I have strong feelings for him, he just introduced me to his mom and his sister, and I'm really hoping things are going somewhere, to he's just reiterated he doesn't want things to go anywhere, and that really crushed me, to immediately, okay, but now we're just good friends. That's hard. That's a lot to ask of yourself. And I wonder if maybe in your desire to prioritize this relationship, which I totally understand, you maybe um, kind of pushed yourself into a, a position where it's like, I must only feel smooth feelings. Nothing jagged, nothing pointy, nothing sharp, nothing difficult, because that will puncture the balloon of this relationship. And I think this relationship can hopefully stand a little bit of, of like a nubbly, frictive surface. So. You're not saying anything unreasonable. You're not saying like, I'm actually deeply in love with you and I can never see you again. You're just saying, you know, this breakup was disappointing for me. I'd hoped for something else. And then, you know, man, beyond that one, I think, of course you feel hurt and resentful that he was affectionate but didn't want the same things that you want. It doesn't sound like he was making you a lot of promises that he then like, you know, lied to you about so much as just he was affectionate and kind of romantic on your dates and then didn't want to build a more serious relationship beyond that. And it's just really, really fine to say, that hurts. I wish that he had. And then also to just kind of remind yourself, like, it is unfortunate that a lot of dating is pretty subjective and often ineffable. Sometimes someone says, I don't really want to be in a serious relationship right now. And they may be perfectly sincere. And then six weeks after you break up, they meet someone who changes their mind. Of course, that's painful, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that the other person has like lied to you or cheated you of something that you should have received. It just means that dating is hard and it's very vulnerable to show someone yourself and say like, do you want some more? And for them to say, no, thanks, I'm good. And then meet somebody else and have a different reaction. It's painful. I think why it's important to remind yourself, it's so subjective that you really cannot take it personally. Yeah. And you'll hear passionate things and then circumstances change and feelings change. And that's sort of just the nature of the beast. It doesn't mean that the things you heard were necessarily even insincere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My last thought is just, you say you want to be happy for him. I really get that. But before you can be happy for him, you need to honestly feel your own feelings. And I think you're just starting to excavate some of those. So I would say, you know, give him peaceful, affectionate distance and clear boundaries on when you'll get back in touch. That's what he needs from you, not a mask of constant happiness. And then go look after yourself and, you know, mourn it, be sad, figure out some other things you might want, take your time, reestablish slow, manageable contact. Don't try to go back to call me every day. Let's hang out every afternoon. Make me one of the regular invites to your beautiful dinner parties that you and your perfect, beautiful girlfriend have every second Thursday or whatever. Oh, God. This second letter is is a little heavier it's it's a painful one, and I'm, I'm hoping that you would be uh, so good as to read it for us. I don't know how honest to be with my sister about her father. 
We grew up in a mess of alcoholic parents. Her father hit our mother when she was pregnant, verbally abused me and my other sister, and spent years terrorizing us all. When I was 11, he molested me. It wasn't rape, but he groped and kissed me in bed. I told my mother, and he said he mistook me for her in the dark. We didn't have much money, and I was sharing my mother's bed at the time, so I kept it a secret for years because I felt like no one else would believe me. Even now, I question whether he really assaulted me or made a drunken mistake. Even aside from this instance, I never wanted to see him again. Our family separated shortly thereafter, and then, when my sister was 17, she ran away after her father hit her. Now, two years later, he's apparently sober, and she is talking to him again. It makes me sick. I freeze up with fear at the thought of ever having to be in the same room again. I'm close to my sister, but the first time I ever told her about how her father beat our mother, she called me a liar and stopped talking to me for over a year. My husband says I should tell her. I think the situation is too fraught and I will lose her. I dread my sister getting engaged because I would have to see this man again at the wedding. I don't know what to do. My sister cries often and bemoans that we don't have a real family. This would destroy her. She's already dealt with suicidal thoughts. Welcome to the family. And I just want her to be happy. Like I said, really heavy. Is there any place that feels most meaningful to sort of start with? Any, any one of the sort of several questions here that you'd like to answer first? Well, the fact that her father actually hit her. I think in the beginning, I sort of thought, okay, she really prefers to not know everything. And sometimes you have to respect people when they say, this is my boundary. Don't tell me things that I don't want to know. And I have a different relationship with this person than you do. And I'm, you know, even if they're committed to sort of living in a living a lie, there are times when if someone says to you directly, I don't want to know anything else, you have to kind of take that in and respect that. But the fact that he hit her and then she left, it ups the stakes a little bit. I don't have the best leaping off point for this because I don't know, Danny, I just feel like you're going to, you're going to drive this car better than I (laughs) I have to say. It's a tough car. This is a heavy one. Very heavy. I think the thing that felt really important to me to kind of address first and letter writer, I'm aware that part of what you were just doing is describing your own thought process. When you think about that assault, you weren't necessarily making like permanent claims. So I don't want to assume that you were being too hard on yourself all of the time. But just on the off chance, if that thought continues to trouble you, I would encourage you to think about two things. One is that, you know, I, I don't I don't think it's a question of either he really assaulted you or he made a drunken mistake. I don't believe that it was a mistake, but regardless, it's it's not about what his secret heart may or may not have intended in that moment. You were assaulted, and whatever he may have been thinking or feeling at the time does not change anything about that. He did assault you. So Again, I I can really imagine that part of that voice that says maybe it was a mistake, maybe is 
echoing some of the things that you heard perhaps from your mother or that you feared hearing from your other relatives. And that was part of what, you know, um, led you to, to not disclose further. But I just really want to be able to, to make it clear he could have been thinking or feeling anything in the world and it would still be assault. There's no list where if he'd been thinking or believing one particular thing, you weren't actually assaulted. That is what happened. And I'm really sorry, but it's it's not a, if he made a mistake, it didn't affect you or you're you're supposed to, you know, wipe it away. That's not how action works. That's not how life works. Um, and so I, I hope that you can try to remind yourself if that thought pops up again. The other thing that I'll just suggest, and again, if that's useful to you, use it. And if it's not, don't worry about it. But if you are are with someone who you know shares a bed routinely with their child, you don't get into bed and just grab whoever's there, regardless of whatever else, again, may have been going on. That is not something that you you do if you are interested in not assaulting children. So even if there's part of you that thinks, well, maybe that evening he was really drunk, so this, that, or the other, it's just, he had all of the information when he was sober. He knew your mother and your sleeping arrangement. This was not his first time in your home. So if any of that is useful to you, use it. If it's not, throw it away. But I would just like to be able to help maybe ground you in those moments where you're inclined to try to talk yourself out of what you know to be true because you're afraid you won't get the support that you need. And I really understand that impulse, but it did happen. He did do it. There are not mitigating circumstances that make it okay. And that can be really hard to to acknowledge, but that is the truth. I appreciate that your husband, presumably, I hope, wants the best for you and, and wants you to be able to share this because Again, I'm presuming, but I hope it's the case, that he hopes that your sister will be able to hear it in a way she couldn't hear other facts about her father in the past and that it will lead to further closeness. So I don't want to impugn anything about his intentions here. I'll just say if he hasn't experienced something like this in his own life, he might be going into this with maybe not rose-colored glasses, but maybe some unrealistic expectations. So again, I don't say that to say dismiss your husband's advice. He's he's way off base so much as just, it's his advice and I think you should consider it. My advice is not to do that. Sometimes people casually say, you should tell them without thinking through what that means for the person involved. It's easy to stand by and say, oh yeah, yeah, just tell them. Everyone should know the truth about everything. If you're the person in the situation, it's a whole different story and the layers and the costs of it are much, Mm -hmm. much more apparent. Especially in the context of, you know, the last time that you tried to talk to your sister about her father's abusiveness, you were actually discussing something that was more widely known. You had reason to believe it would not be as like shocking or upsetting. And even then she reacted about as badly as you can. And it sounds like has never acknowledged or apologized that you were not lying and that she wrongly called you a liar. And so there's that pain there as well of there's not a good track record on that front. And she hasn't yet demonstrated that she knows that she was trying to blame me for something that upset her about her father that she didn't want to acknowledge. So 
for that reason, I could really understand why you're reluctant. So if there's anything to be taken from your husband's advice, I think it's that it would be good for you to talk to somebody. I would encourage you, you know, always, if you're able to afford a therapist, I would recommend finding a therapist, especially one who specializes in dealing with like the fallout from um, family trauma, from abusive parenting, from child sexual abuse. If that's not possible to consider a support group, there's a, an organization, I don't want to like make a blanket recommendation, but I know off the top of my head, there's an organization called Living Waters that does support groups for people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse. There are other similar organizations in different parts of the country. Those might be useful to you as well. You might want to discuss it with a trusted friend who maybe doesn't know any of your relatives and who you believe is good at hearing difficult truths and, and keeping it confidential. But between your sister's track record with what information was already out there, her defensiveness around her father, and the fact that she's talking to him again, I really don't want to say you can't because, of course, you need to know that you have that choice if you want to take it. But I think you are reasonable to be thinking it's too fraught. But on the other hand, you know, you say, I think it'll be too fraught and I'll lose her. That part. Again, I, I just I want to be so like gentle here. I don't want to say you have to push for a reckoning right now, but I do want you to be mindful of the possibility that even if you don't push, if all you do is hold steady to, I can't be in a room with this guy and I can't really hear you talk about him, she might push you on that anyways. And if that does happen, I want you to be prepared to take care of yourself. I think that ties back to the beginning about what, you what you said about how what happened was abuse and that's crystal clear at the end of the letter she uses the word fear and dread and in some ways even if you're not willing to say classify what happened with this person when you were 11 the effects of it are crystal clear and honoring those emotions saying to yourself i ha- i feel an enormous i will i become paralyzed with fear i i'm thinking about an event in the future this wedding theoretical wedding and i have i'm filled with dread at the thought of it the amount of anxiety and 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 just mm-hmm. sadness and and Dif- very difficult emotions, let's say, that are in the mix here. You have to honor that and and move very gently with yourself as a result of the fact that these emotions are what matter. It doesn't, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who have been through something similar and they don't even, they can't even classify what happened. They don't even know or remember what it was about this person in their life but when they see the person, they lock up mm-hmm. um, and they know something's menacing there. Something's wrong. Taking the emotions themselves seriously is a part of taking your experience seriously and taking and making space, making space for yourself to live the way you want to live. I would just want to reiterate that the gentleness that you treat yourself with in this situation is everything. Yeah. I also want to acknowledge like the the letter writer's sister sounds like is now 19. So she's really young. And I don't know how old your sister was when you 
broached the subject of her father beating your mother. She might have been quite young when that happened. And so, again, I still think it is not good that she got defensive and blamed you and and stopped talking to you. But I also want to acknowledge that she was, at that point, a child in an abusive home or a child who had run away from an abusive home and um, was going through a lot herself. So not to say, therefore, it's okay or therefore, she's going to grow up into a totally different person and I promise you she's going to change. It's real and it's hard. And I can also understand why you have wanted to extend some openness and flexibility there because of her relative youth. That said, you know, letter writer, I think the the sort of intense pressure of that last paragraph of, I don't know what to do. This would destroy her. I want to try to flip some of those ideas. Right now you have it framed as if we were ever honest about her father, she would be destroyed. But the sort of necessary implications of that is something like, if I want to have a relationship with my sister, I have to commit to some kind of lie about her father. And I can't imagine doing that. And I also feel like if I don't participate in that lie with her, I will be causing her harm. I will be adding to her burden. I will be exacerbating her suicidality. And I will be committing harm. And I just really, really want to gently push that one away and say, that is not what you are thinking about doing. Regardless of whether you choose to disclose that particular assault with your sister, there is still plenty of honesty that you could speak about her father and his effect on you and why you cannot be in a room with him or hear about him that don't require you to disclose. You have plenty to talk about as it is. So I just, I guess that's why I wanted to say that. I want you to feel freedom to talk about this on other terms. You have your own reasons. And a relationship where you have to lie about someone who abused you both is not a sustainable relationship where you're both caring for each other equally. It's a relationship where somebody is asking you to hurt yourself for them. And that's not right. And again, I really want to stress, I don't think that your sister is a monster or you know, irredeemable, but it's not okay what she is trying to extract from you. It's not right. And she shouldn't be doing it, even though she is 19, even though she has also suffered some abuse from his hands. Yeah, it's it's hard because it sounds like she's she's pretty bewildered by the situation and and maybe doesn't have the communication skills to sort of even talk about it or or and also she clearly doesn't isn't welcoming in new information or memories from her sister. So it's a hard one. It's really hard, really hard. I know. I know. I think my last thought here is that line about, I just want her to be happy. Letter writer, I would encourage you to remind yourself as much as possible, her happiness does not rest upon lying about who her father is. Real happiness does not depend on the maintenance of a lie. If it did, it wouldn't be real happiness. So whatever happiness might look like for her, you can have all the compassion for her in the world. You can love her and want the best for her. And you can also refuse to lie and hurt yourself because that is not, in fact, real happiness, and that is not within your power to give her. So I think the most important thing for you to do is to be clear that you're not going to be around him, 
and you need her not to share anything about him with you. If beyond that you find that having a relationship with him is still so hard that you have difficulty being around her, you might need to take another step back there. And I can understand why that would be painful, but that would not be you hurting her. That would not be you causing trouble. That would be you acknowledging reality. I want you to I want you to want you to be happy as much as you want her to be happy. You can still love her without prioritizing her desire to live in a lie. I I know that the situations are not exactly parallel, but I was also very, very close with my sister. And the last thing that she ever said directly to me was that she thought our brother was a hero. Um, and that that was a difficult thing to hear. And that was a painful thing. And it's one of the reasons that uh, we don't have a relationship now. And um, it doesn't mean that I don't want good things for her, but it does mean that I have to acknowledge the foundation that she wants for a relationship with me is unbearable and wrong, and I cannot do it. And it would not be good to do it. Um, it would not be a loving thing. It would not be like honoring the best version of her, whatever that version is. I cannot choose closeness over honesty. And those things aren't always at odds. They're often not. Um, but in a, in, an, in a situation like this one, I think, you know, closeness without honesty is just it's like being tied up and thrown in a river together. It's not, it's not the kind of closeness that feeds the soul. I'm sad now. Heather, do you want to talk about something nice? Sure. I was just thinking, I was just wondering though, do you think that this sister needs her sister to lie? Or do you think that she could maybe sort of, is there a way that they can sort of, you know, coexist? Because she's so young, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad. I think that that's actually a good thing to think about. You know, if you were to say, sister, I love you. I want to talk about something that we haven't discussed before. And by which I mean the, the, the conversation where she called you a liar and stopped talking to you for a year because you acknowledged that her father beat your mother. And to say, I would like to talk about that conversation again with you if you're available to hear me out. Are you? You know, you can also maybe if you need to acknowledge that that might be difficult for her to do and that you don't need her to answer you right away, but that you would like her to give it some serious thought. And if so, that you would like to just share how that conversation made you feel and what you hope to get from her, which might be something like an acknowledgement that she hurt you, perhaps an apology, um, perhaps a willingness to talk about what it sounds like she is now prepared to admit at least to some degree, which is that he has been violent with her and other members of her family. See where she's at with any of it. If you if you want to check in with a counselor or a support group or your partner or a trusted friend beforehand, I would really encourage that. Like, get some support like locked in place before. But that I think would be the best place to start to see if she is prepared to have a different kind of conversation about this. Yeah, that makes sense. Because again, you know, that that's a real opportunity for potential repair between the two of you that doesn't require you to then share additional vulnerable information. I think that's like there is potential here for 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 healing between the two of you. I don't think it's guaranteed. I wish I could guarantee it, but I do think it's possible. I, I don't want to say just walk away now and and don't try. But I do think that in order to feel safe sharing new vulnerable information with her, you would first need to see whether or not she could acknowledge that she 
had done something wrong in that last conversation. And again, not like you awful jerk. You are totally responsible for how you reacted to this when you were, I don't know, 14 or 15 or 16. Like you can extend patience and compassion in that conversation. But you can also say, you know, I think you can probably understand how that felt. And I would love to know a little bit more about what changed for you or did you know in that moment that you were displacing blame onto me because you were afraid to admit it about your father. I, you know, don't put like words in her mouth necessarily, but it would be wonderful if she could say, I'm really sorry. I haven't brought it up because I've felt ashamed and uh, uncomfortable, but I didn't want it to be true. I was frightened. He is my father. I wanted him to be better than he was. I depended on him and it was easier to lash out at you. And I'm sorry. Ideally, if, if you could hear that, that might potentially lay the groundwork for the possibility of, sharing more in the future. But again, if any part of you feels like, I think she might leverage that against me, I think she might blame me for my own assaults, spare yourself that if you can. Yeah. And, and also set your expectations a little bit low in that for that conversation, just so you don't feel overwhelmed with disappointment when you're have in the middle of the conversation. I mean, might, that might be true no matter what you do, but sometimes it helps to kind of brace yourself and say, I'm going to, I could hear a lot of wild stuff and I just need to sit with it and be present and let it wash over me and not react in the moment and just, you know, try to stay in a place of compassion for this person while, for your sister, while you're uh, sussing out if there's any movement here. Yeah. And my hope is that your sister can let go of her ideas about a quote unquote real family and maybe see that she has, you know, a sister who wants very much to be close, to try to facilitate her happiness, to love and care for one another, and to also, you know, not run away from the reality that you were raised by an alcoholic and abusive father, stepfather in the letter writer's case. It is possible to do both of those things. It is not easy or straightforward, but, you know, I hope that she doesn't let this image of the kind of family that you have never had get in the way of the kind of family that she could have with you right now. I think this feels like a, a fairly good moment to sort of step out of this one and move into, you know, a sort of more broad category of like writing about family or thinking about family or the difference between ideas of happiness versus what happiness looks like uh, in this sort of day to day. And and I'm so curious, was there any other writing about marriage, either uh, in, in fiction or nonfiction that has especially influenced your own work um, or, or that you felt like was something that you wanted to either recreate or um, build on uh, as you were working on this book? No, there wasn't. I mean, part of the reason I wrote the book was because I I was reading first person nonfiction a, a few books about marriage, and I felt I felt like I, I something was missing. Like I wanted to know more about these marriages that were being described, and I was curious. And I, but I was also kind of skeptical. I felt like I was being protected from the real marriage. But I also read Burn Your House Down by Gina Frangello, and that's a book about an affair and divorce. And it was a very, very honest, brutally honest and interesting and quite a ride, a very uh, exciting and kind of thrilling ride through the dissolution of a marriage. 
So divorce memoirs are often very interesting and, and exciting and marriage memoirs, and, and they feel truthful because the relationship is broken. Marriage memoirs for me felt, feel more stiff, like a bad conversation with someone you don't know that well about their marriage and how great it is or how, ha ha ha, he does a few bad things, but love that guy. So I wanted to create something that felt more like the marriages in fiction. I mean, okay, I I love Updike and the Rabbit books. And so I guess I am kind of attracted to conflicted, ambivalent stories and also humiliating stories. And uh, why not bring those into a piece of nonfiction, Danny? Why not? Uh, so I, I guess um, my inspiration came from, you know, the the lack of a certain kind of book about marriage and also from my own marriage. I mean, when I set out to write this book, my idea was that I have such a good marriage that I'm just going to write. I alone can write about how hard marriages can be because my marriage is amazing and, st- you know, it bestrides the narrow world of marriages like a colossus. And then I started writing about my marriage and therefore challenging my marriage and, you know, stress testing my marriage. And a lot of interesting things came out of that where I sort of like all of my arrogance was put to the test and crumbled before my eyes. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a very interesting experiment that I do not recommend, but the result is that I feel like I captured 15 years with my husband and a lot of people are getting back to me and saying, this book is very romantic, Heather. It's just very romantic, which when I started the book, I was like, oh, romance. What can I even write about the romantic things? Like I just wasn't, it wasn't exciting to me. So the fact that I ended up writing something that's sort of romantic about the small things in a marriage that make the marriage work and romantic about accepting someone not in spite of their flaws, but because of their flaws, enjoy starting to enjoy their flaws instead of turning your turning away from them. And also just welcoming the whole person in, which I don't think I even completely knew how to do until I wrote this book. This book helped me to say, yeah, sure, all these things bug me, but I, they're also just a piece of this man that I, you know, I love him. He's great. And all of his flaws are bound up with all of his good qualities, and they form this magical, broken, caved-in person, just like my terrible personality and my flaws and my qualities uh, form a weird person. And and Bill and I really accept each other. And so I feel like that trajectory in the book works, and the people who have read the whole book certainly... (laughs) seem to understand. I had a few people tell me that they were feeling terrible about their marriages and this book made them feel better, which, I mean, that sounds a little bit like, you know, I hate living in this dark box. And then you wrote a nice poem about (laughs) being in the dark and whoa. But, you know, sometimes marriages, commitments, any kinds of long-term commitments we bring ourselves into, they require a perspective shift constantly because that's just the nature of commitment. Yeah. Yeah. That No, that makes so much sense. I, as, as you may know, I have been reading Middlemarch more slowly than any human being alive. I've been reading it since like 2015 at this point. 
And I don't know if that was at all a book that you kind of had in mind as you were writing for Everland. It strikes me as one with a, a fair number of parallels, but I was thinking especially, do you know the scene where like Dorothea is offering Rosamond advice again? And there's just that great line where she says, um, marriage is so unlike everything else. There is something even awful in the nearness it brings. Even if we loved someone else better than, than those we were married to, it would be no use. And then it says, like, poor Dorothea and her palpitating anxiety could only seize her language brokenly. I mean, marriage drinks up all of our power of giving or getting any blessedness in that sort of love. I know it may be very dear, but it murders our marriage. And then the marriage stays with us like a murder and everything else is gone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I haven't read Middlemarch. Neither have I. <laughs> There's still so much book to go. That quote is like I, I, driving off a cliff. It's like George Eliot had some fabulous thoughts about marriages and uh, Middlemarch just packed to the brim. So it'd be a good double bill for your book, I think. Add it to my to-do list over the next seven years. I can maybe finish it. Yeah, but I, I think there's so much use and, and value in looking at the the vagaries and the pains of daily intimacy not in the sense of, well, now this is delusion to great dream. I thought living together with someone I loved uh, would be every day a great delight. I, I think it's 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 a little bit like, I, I would hope that anyone who would read your book would give you at least some of the credit of believing that you were not unclear on what marriage was before entering into it. You did not think every day would be a rose garden and you were merely coming up against delusionment, disillusionment, but you're you're fully aware as as I think any halfway honest person is that living with another person is beautiful and horrifying and can sometimes feel like the worst thing in the world not necessarily because marriage is uniquely bad although there are ways in which marriage can be uniquely bad um, but because living with other people and doing so honestly without smoothing yourself all of the time can be incredibly difficult yeah especially when you um, leave the oven on for a long long time and hey, I was alone when I did that. <laughs> yeah, but what was in the oven? All right, I guess we're telling the story <laughs> briefly. Last night, I heard a mouse behind the stove, and I've been trying to get this mouse for a little while now. And I turned on all the lights in the kitchen to sort of encourage him to go away because I couldn't get behind the stove. Please go away, mouse, Danny said. Please leave. I don't need you here. This, you don't, you do not pay rent. And then I thought, I will turn on the oven just for a few minutes, not because, again, I'm not naive. I didn't think the mouse was in the oven. I just thought maybe if that whole area is uncomfortably warm, he'll want to go somewhere else. Too hot. So I turned it on to broil, and then I went and I brushed my teeth. And in the course of brushing my teeth, I forgot that I had turned the oven on to broil. And I had also forgotten that the day before, Grace had roasted an entire pork belly, which was delicious, but meant there was about, oh, four cups of pork lard in a cast iron skillet in the oven, which I set to broil and then forgot about for a solid hour. And then my kitchen was full of black, black, black smoke. And I smell like a campfire. And it was very upsetting. I don't know how we got on my fault in this. Is there a lingering stench of pig? It's way past pig. There's no, it's it's just burnt. The The smell is just burning and like bad. It's not like, oh, I went to a beach bonfire and my hair kind of pleasantly smells of like smoke and marshmallows the next day. It's like... I've emerged from the woods and bad primeval things happened there. And this is a, a, a place of no honor. A place of no honor. Did you, do your sheets also smell incredibly barbecued? 
Like, does everything in your house, have you have you put your nose up to things to see if they're all, do your dogs smell? What are you trying to do to me? Yes. Yes. My house smells bad, Heather. My sheets smell bad. My couch smells bad. I've opened all the windows, but I got a lot of cleaning ahead of me. You got me. It's all bad. So this is a, you know, a test, right? See, you don't even have any blame. That's the difference between us. My heart is filled with blame. Oh, I blame the mouse. You blame the mouse and not Grace. I blame the mouse. I blame the concept of ovens. Well, Grace was out of town. I blame that like an angel of the Lord didn't appear in the kitchen and say, my son, you forgot that you left the oven on. I blame that, I don't know, a a friend didn't call and say, hey, I'm just calling to say that you're a treasure and you're the new Robert Benchley. And have you turned on any appliances lately that need to be turned off? I blame the dogs for not barking and alerting me. I blame you for not knowing on the other side of the country. Uh, I blame Phil, my producer, for not intuiting that there was something wrong and texting. Hey, man, you okay? Everybody. Name a person and I will blame them for it. Uh, Barbara Streisand. Absolutely. She lives in New York, right? You know what she was doing? She was just sitting around thinking about herself. Oh, no. She famously lives in California because she like, Google Maps took a picture of her mansion years ago and she got cross about it. And then that became some sort of effect. You got cross about it. That was like a classic Danny... Danny sentence. She cross. She became cross. She was really rather miffed. <laughs> and she flounced out of her house. She said, "What? What?" Mm. Heather, Heather, we did so much. Are you sleepy? I'm sleepy. I'm ready for a banana split. Yeah, that's what I want. If you could please mail me half of it. Okay. Thanks. I'll put it in this envelope here, and hopefully it'll hold up. We're really only an hour flight away from each other now that I'm on the East Coast. So you could be airlifting me a half of a banana split is what I'm hearing. I could. Heather, where can people find your fabulous book, Foreverland, on the divine tedium of marriage? Can they get it wherever books are sold? They can, in fact. If they walk into their local indie bookstore, they may see it. At, well, I'm hoping they'll see it right in the window. That saucy lady on the cover looking over her husband's shoulder at someone else hopefully heather thank you again (laughs) have a fabulous rest of your day and i hope to get you back on the show soon oh thanks so much for having me i had a good time thank you for joining us on big mood little mood with me danny lavery our producer is phil circus who also composed our theme music Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Part of what was painful about the end of this friendship and part of what it sounds like led to the end of this friendship was that your friend was not willing to share maybe low-level frustrations or concerns with you. 
And then that eventually built up to a point where conversation was pretty near impossible. And you should be, I think, looking for ways to not replicate that experience. And so you have, I think, an opportunity here not to say, oh, I don't feel bad, which in some ways gestures at the truth and in other ways doesn't. And to say, I feel bad and that is reasonable and okay. And it's not the same thing as saying, I'll never get over this or I'm destroyed or this is the worst thing that's happening to me. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.